the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi everyone, welcome to the July edition of Beer with Blue Marble Space. I'm Jacob and thanks for listening. Uh, this is the podcast that features the ideas, philosophies, and research of members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our virtual research institute, you can check us out online at www.bmsis.org. And you can listen to previous episodes of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. Uh, so we have a wonderful show for you today. We have our friend Arsef who will be joining us. But uh, first, to kick things off, uh, Betul is going to tell us a little bit about her adventures in Japan. Hello, everyone. Actually, before introducing Arsef, uh, we talked about introducing a beverage. And uh, the beverage actually will come from Tokyo, even though I cannot specifically remember the name. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys how to order a good sake in Tokyo. And uh, that will be through... You know, you have to use the body language, I guess. But find the words that go along with dry, cold. I figured that the, the hot sake is actually much stronger than, than cold sake. And it may be a little bit challenge to find the best way to order in Japan if you don't speak Japanese. But I figured that if you use the, the words that is wet, using the rain as a prompt, and then say the opposite of rain, that is dry, and go along with the cold. So that was our way of ordering cold and dry sake. It's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague and my friend, Arsev Umur Aydnoğlu. Uh, Arsev received his bachelor's degree and, uh, and master's degree both in Ankara. He has a bachelor's degree from Hacettepe University in economics and Master's in Public Relations from Gazi University, also in Ankara. He's a NASA Astrobiology Institute postdoctoral fellow studying at NASA Ames. Basically, Arsev is, is a bit different from the rest of us because he's a social scientist. So briefly, really, in my understanding, Arsev studies how we study astrobiology. And I think it's very interesting. He travels a lot to the various um, teams of NASA Astrobiology Institute, and he tries to understand how we collaborate, how we communicate, and whether we are productive, and what ways can we more efficiently produce science and scientific information and share our knowledge with each other. Arsev had a very interesting history. He uh, worked at the World Bank in the Turkey office and as a public information assistant for about five years. And he also, I know, that has a history in publishing and very um, real-life experiences, as you may refer. So today he's going to talk about cross-disciplinarity in astrobiology research, messy or diverse. Thank you, Arsef. Thanks, Betul. Well, thanks for introducing me. As you just heard, I have a very uh, multidisciplinary background. You know, I didn't stop at uh, public relations master's degree. Then I got an interdisciplinary PhD degree from... Uh, College of Communication and Information Sciences to study people like you because I am very fond of scientists and science in general and I love all of them so I want to study all of them since I cannot study all of them with the limited time I have on this planet you know around 70-75 years maybe a little bit less because of the beer consumption 
So I decided to study a group that is really diverse, so I can study all of different scientists coming from you know, different backgrounds. And astrobiology is a perfect fit, since it is very, very uh, transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary. Oh, should I say multidisciplinary? Cross-disciplinary? What the heck I'm talking about? Yeah, so let's start with defining these basic terms a little bit before we move forward. I guess you all know unidisciplinary, right? We all get PhDs from one single discipline, you know, molecular biology or geosciences or astrobiology, you know, that is defined as one single discipline. You know, in, when people, when especially researchers say multidisciplinary, it is a group of people studying a topic from different angles and they keep their identities. It is, it's like an encyclopedic alignment. You know, they don't mingle much. Uh, early climate research was like that. Uh, you know, you had meteorologists, atmospheric scientists, you have people who study oceans. And these people sometimes shared their research with each other, but they did not feed into too much. And multidisciplinary research is, again, we see, for instance, uh, public health. You have doctors, you have communication people to convey these health messages. You have practitioners, you know, social workers, again. And these all work in their own domains. And every once in a while, they come together and then they go back to their uh, own domains. However, interdisciplinarity, there is more integration and more sharing. The basic assumption in interdisciplinary research is the system is greater than the sum of its parts. These groups come together and they form a language, a jargon, a terminology. We see this in astrobiology. Of course, we see this multidisciplinary aspect as well, but in astrobiology, we can clearly see interdisciplinarity. You know, you have, we have microcombinations of models. We have, you know, consulting and partnering nodes. In generally, in multidisciplinary research, you outsource some services. You know, you send a sample, for instance, to a lab to be analyzed, and you just get the numbers back and continue your own work in multidisciplinary research. In interdisciplinary research, you work with the people in the other lab, in a different domain, and integrate their results with your research. Uh, you form a community, and it is clearly the case in astrobiology. And I will give more examples during my presentation today. And I believe it is one of the most important strengths of astrobiology research, having this community, especially this uh, early career folks, the young people. I don't know if you know, Half of the NAI-funded researchers currently received their PhDs after 2000, which means that we have a very young body of scholars. And in addition to that, one quarter of astrobiology community or NAI-funded astrobiology community is PhD students and undergrads, So, which makes only a quarter of our community senior scholars. So we have a very young and vibrant community that drives this interdisciplinary research culture. And my understanding is interdisciplinary research is an ecosystem. You know, all these different entities live together and feed each other. 
a larger, more holistic understanding of the problem and question is also, again, another uh, feature of interdisciplinary research. And we, we change our hypothesis, we revise our theories after this interaction. Our transdisciplinarity is, and this is the boring part of my speech, it will become more fun in a moment, but I need to define these. Transdisciplinary research is a more uh, abstract concept where you lose institutional identity. You know, researchers were jointly using short conceptual framework, drawing together from different disciplines, theories, concept, approaches to address a common problem. Some argue that cancer research is transdisciplinary or sustainability research is transdisciplinarity. But of course, in the real world, we lose that abstract, that where everything merges together mindset. I will not go into details of that because these are more philosophical definitions. In the real world, a research or a researcher or a research team can fit in these different domains. There are no clear cuts, but it helps us to understand and analyze what you scientists and scientific teams do. And feel free to jump in anytime if you have any questions. Uh, of course, I'm following the script, but the more we interact, the better things, uh, this presentation will be. So how far this multidisciplinarity goes? Actually, it goes to the earliest you can think of when people started to get curious about the world they live in because at the time we didn't have disciplines. If you're curious about something like a, a Greek philosopher, you're interested in everything. I mean, you studied optics, you studied astronomy, you studied philosophy, and you merged these things just to understand what is happening around you. So until the disciplines introduced around 1800s, everything was multi-cross, transdisciplinary. I didn't define cross-disciplinarity, by the way, because cross-disciplinarity is the umbrella term to cover multi, uh, inter, and transdisciplinarity. So until we introduced disciplines around 1800s, everything was cross-disciplinary. And that was needed in 1800s because, you know, you might think that how stupid why they introduced that because there was a growing body of knowledge and people at the time, scientists or scholars realized that they cannot know everything in geology. They cannot know everything on biology. They cannot know everything on electromagnetism. So they had to specialize. But my, my feeling is that this specialization nowadays is too harsh and we have these isolated body of knowledges that are not talking to each other anymore. And astrobiology is a huge opportunity for us to again make these connections between these isolated silos so we can have a better understanding of the world or life, because life does not happen in these isolated boxes. Problems do not come in these isolated boxes. And my favorite among cross-disciplinary researcher, what we call at the time for these guys are natural philosophers, is Descartes. He was a mathematician, he was a philosopher, he was a physicist who studied optics and stuff. Uh, he, he was an amazing guy. In the more contemporary times, the first multidisciplinary lab we see is actually the Bell Labs. You know, the AT&T company and Bell Labs, the telephone. And actually they won 
multiple novel they had multiple Nobel laureates at the time before World War II and this is important because after World War II how we conduct science has changed the president and at the time the director of Bell Labs created a new building it's the Murray Hall building building number one where uh, chemists physicists metallurgists engineers coming together and work. It's more like the Steve Jobs Apple building we have today. That guy at the time had the vision, uh, Kelly, had, and he's in, if I'm not mistaken, he's an MIT graduate, or Caltech graduate, one of them. He created this building where people run into each other at the hallways. You know, it, it seems so normal for us today, you know, creating a cafeteria where people go and have these informal chit-chats and intellectually nourish each other. But this was happening around 1930s. And that's amazing. And at the time, there was no big science, or there were no team science, or there were no understanding of science. Because at the time, science was either funded by private sector or industry, or you were in your chateau, creating Frankenstein alone, isolated. <laughs> there were no team science effort before World War II. After Manhattan Project, actually, the American government, thanks to Wynnewer Bush, realized the importance of science. And that's why they call World War II the War of Physicists. And it's not the only Manhattan Project, actually, the invention of radar. And they spent $3 billion at the time. Manhattan Project costed $2 billion only. Invention of radar is a bigger cross-disciplinary project, having many, you know, thousands of scientists working jointly. Even in Manhattan Project, we had 10,000 people working on, on three different countries, Canada, U.S., and England. And in, of course, U.S., we had three big laboratories in Chicago, in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Los Alamos, as you all know. So after World War II, government decided to fund basic science, people like us. And they decided to fund teams. And when we say team, it generally requires, not necessarily, not all the time, but it generally requires people from different disciplines or people who have different expertise to work together to complement each other. And that's the essence of actual interdisciplinary research because you know, Jacob has something I don't have. But what he has can contribute to what I have. Together we can contribute on Grasshopper's research, and then Betul can come and synthesize this research and create a, what we what is called is a, a meta-knowledge. Now, at the time, I don't have that alone, Jacob doesn't have that alone, Grasshopper doesn't have that alone, and after some exchange, we come to a bigger a meta-understanding of astrobiology phenomena. So, in today's astrobiology research, I just want to give a couple of examples. What are the cross-disciplinary projects? Actually, all projects could be considered transdisciplinary, but some of the ones you know, like favor, like the uh, astrobiological exploration of Mars. You know, you have Mars exploration, you have geology, you have thermodynamics, and these are real projects. And this is the PI's words. I'm, this is from my research. You have microbiology. You have engineers to send that probe to Mars, and they work all together. Or uh, detecting biosignatures, that's the University of Washington project. You know, 
We use photochemistry models with biological laboratory data and astronomical spectral and stellar models to produce synthetic spectra of potential exoplanets. You have meteorological uh, scientists in this group and also geological scientists because they define or they make us understand how these planets form. Is there a rocket planet or gas planet or blah blah? So it's they have these people have come together, talk to each other, and develop this metacognition, meta understanding. Another favorite of mine, and I listened to this film called Pilcher. So, you know, it has the dearest memories in my mind. Then I later confirmed it with uh, Lauren Williams, actually. It is uh, about the RNA uh, binding, RNA, RNA folding. Uh, today, RNA folds with uh, magnesium. And, you know, we use, mag we, in our bodies and living systems, we, magnesium helps this RNA folding and the protein and rest and better can jump in and tell more if I say something wrong. But through quantum calculations, we know that magnesium behaves like oxygen and sometimes way better. However, oxygen is a poison to us, all living system because of the rusting. So Lauren was working on this problem, RNA folding, for some time. I mean, he, his career is kind of on this topic, RNA. And he is the you know, head of uh, an institution in Georgia, at Georgia Tech, uh, working on these topics. And he is the PR of one of the NASA NAI uh, nodes. So he was working on this problem. And in one of the NAI meetings, he was talking to a geoscientist, saying that, you know, our models work better with oxygen. But oxygen is poison. I mean, it, it cannot work with oxygen. Your life cannot originate through RNA using oxygen for, for RNA to fall. But if it were, it would be way easier, a way better model we have. And this geoscientist said to him, you know what? Three billion years ago, four billion years ago, we didn't have oxygen on this planet. So they developed a model, and this article was published in Plus One, RNA folding and catalysis mediated by iron, that's the title of the article, published in Plus One last year. So they developed this model in early Earth, things happened with oxygen, and then, according to their hypothesis, we mutated, we, you know, through evolution, we phased out oxygen and we started to use magnesium because iron is uh, poison to us. However, this happened only through a hallway chat with this geoscientist and Laura Milling, who is a biochemist. So it is, it is sometimes so subtle to observe these little details in terms of disciplinary research, so it's so hard to measure. How do we measure cross-disciplinarity? You know, there are a couple of methods which I will mention in a second. One of them is bibliometrics. We look at publications, who wrote the article, who cited that, but when we use that, there is so much. So when we look at, for instance, bibliometrical research, we see co-authorship practices. Who co-authors with whom? You know, does Grasshopper write the paper, write the paper with Jacob? Do they belong to different disciplines? Do they publish in a journal different than their original discipline? That's how we track cross-disciplinary research. Or on a project, do I and 
uh, better work together. Maybe we work on a project together in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, science communication, yeah, popularization of science, we go to laymen and tell, you know, high school kids, it's a project we work on together, it's a cross-disciplinary project, it's not in our own domain, you know, I'm not a science communicator, she's not a science communicator, at least one of the heads is different, but you cannot track the project I, the project Betul and I do for science communication through the geometrics. And then the thing to track is to look for um, citations. So who do we cite? I am, let's say, an information scientist. I cite organization studies. I cite philosophy of science papers. I cite uh, communication studies papers. I cite and cite and cite. And someone analyzes my articles, which if it's something we do here at NAI, I do for the publications of NAI teams, and I look at which teams cite which papers. So we can compare that to the disciplinary identity of that team, because each team has different uh, teams. For instance, Georgia Tech has a team on RNA. So if they cite journals in astronomy, we say that there is a disciplinary outreach there. Uh, it's good to track, it's tedious work though. And later, when you publish this article, who cites these papers? You know, they publish in a biochemistry journal, but maybe a geoscience journal article cites this paper. Again, we see another cross-disciplinary reach. And at the end, we get a network map of these disciplines and who's citing whom, who's feeding each other. And we can do this for disciplines, we can do this for scientists, individual level, we can do this for teams or project units, and then we have an understanding of the cross-disciplinary scientific world in astrobiology research, and this research is ongoing. Let me tell you in this one. Okay, this is confusing. I have many things open in front of me, but we did a research, I did a research on this disciplinary interaction using project data. So we had, you know, I analyzed the team rosters and saw that we have geoscientists most in astrobiology research, surprisingly. Biology came in the second order. Astronomy was also in the first order with geosciences and chemistry. These were the three most uh, represented fields in astrobiology, in AITs, actually. However, this was just the team rosters, and it was not telling us much. I didn't know if these astronomers and chemists working together, or astronomers go to their own field, own part of the room, and chemists go to their own part of the room, and we didn't know if there was any interaction or not. So we did an analysis on every project NAI conducted, and last year only, NAI teams conducted more than 107, 71, 72 projects. And we run each project to see if these different disciplines interact with each other more or not. And the results were quite different. Geoscientists, geosciences were still at the core of the network, 
But now we see that they interacted with biologists, they interacted with atmospheric scientists, they even interacted with philosophers, which was amazing, and we can track these things. Uh, so network analysis is actually a good way of tracking cross-disciplinary research. I will not go into details of more these kind of measures, but just let me say, whenever you read something about bibliometrics, you know, publication records, and say that based on publications we see this interaction, it is the golden standard, so you might run in your careers in your later ages. You have to be a little bit suspicious, because bibliometrics tells the story of a finished product only. If the product is not finished, there is nothing to tell. And you might not see the interaction. For instance, uh, Lauren Williams' case, when he learned this information from geoscientists, of course, that geoscientist was not mentioned in the paper because it was just a small hallway talk. That was it. But actually, that's an interaction as NAI or other funding agencies want to promote because that's how science progressed. Or sometimes you, especially in biomedical research and medicine research, you have what we call honorary authorship. You have someone famous in the co-author list just to increase the credibility of the paper because no journal will say, for instance, no to a Stephen Hawking article. Even if it's uh, blind peer review, the editor will just <laughs> move in and if he's not babbling, if he's not you know, out of his mind, you know, that person's name will bring some credibility to paper. So, honorary authorship, just without contribution, actual contribution in terms of science, will dilute your results. Or, in some cases, we what we call hyper-authorship, where you have more than a hundred authors. Or, mega-authorship, where you have more than a thousand co-authors. You, know, you lose track of who is collaborating with whom. It just becomes a messy soup. Or vegetables, mine means tony soup. You know, you can distinguish the taste of macaroni from beans or tomato. It gets all. It's not the transdisciplinary. It's maybe it's the real transdisciplinary you want, but it's hard to track. And as a as scientists, if we cannot track, if we cannot measure, we say it doesn't exist. Like love, you know, we cannot measure. Love doesn't exist. So don't play with this idea by yourselves. Uh, another measure is network analysis to see, you know, centrality or network uh, structure. You know, there are different terms of, for instance, we say betweenness. It's the number of times a node acts as a bridge along the shortest path between two or other nodes, which means you have someone as a catalyst, actually more than a catalyst, between different researchers. The term also I use in my dissertation, the liaison role. So, for instance, if I am writing, if I'm doing a study on including geosciences and some machinery, so I need an, uh, if I need an engineer, I would go and employ Sanjoy because he has this two roles. He can speak the language of an engineer because of his education, and he can speak the language of an geoscientists. So he becomes a hub and his between the score will be high because he will be connecting these two different disciplines. People with 
mixed backgrounds are quite important in team science and interdisciplinary team science. Or, you know, the centralization. For instance, geosciences is the central in astrobiology because of its importance in astrobiology research. So we try to measure these scores. And I also do some uh, quantitative research, which I will tell a little bit more right now to talk about the barriers of uh, interdisciplinary research in astrobiology. And this comes from actual qualitative data. You know, we have a structure. You know, there are some individual problems and there are some structural problems that no one can help. Like, we understand the academic world in disciplines. You know, in order to manage a university unit disciplines. However, when you do that, you allocate different resources to each discipline and you make these guys compete against each other and you kill competition and there isn't much we can do. But there are things as an AI we can do and these challenges and barriers I will mention mostly touch on that part. The first is lack of open-minded people. If you don't have the right people, there won't be any interdisciplinary research because there are really narrow-minded people who don't want to reach out, who don't want to leave their comfort zone. You know, they are not risk takers, they are not team players, or they value only one type of scientific research, you know, experiment. That's it. If it's not experiment, it's not valid because modeling, who knows, it's not experiment. For you. So if you don't have the right people, you know, they have to be bilingual and disciplines. If you don't have a lack of right people is the problem. And in astrobiology, actually, we don't, we have, of course, an evidence that we have, but in astrobiology research, thanks to NAI support to early career folks, people are more cognizant of this interdisciplinary research. And especially young people are more enthusiastic about that. Now, a Harvard University researcher told me that I think when you take a 55-year-old person and say, now your future depends on your doing interdisciplinary work, that is probably too late. Interdisciplinary research should be engaged in early ages. It's a habit, and it's better if you start doing it as early as possible. And thanks to astrobiology programs at University of Washington and Penn State, also at Brad Cohn, and summer and winter schools, people have that vision. So that's, that's the problem and that's the cure, if it makes sense. Another uh, senior researcher at Harvard also told me that it's all about intellectual peripheral vision. And intellectual peripheral vision it allows you to, even if you don't know anything about microbiology, if you have the intellectual peripheral vision, you know who has knowledge and you know what question to ask to that person to start a collaboration. But if you're trained in a very confined box, isolated box, you don't know what's happening else around and what other things can benefit you or how you can benefit them. So that intellectual peripheral vision should be as wide as possible. Generally, most researchers told me that you need a core discipline and then reach out, and that's correct. But in order to reach out, you need an intellectual peripheral vision. You need to write a very narrow dissertation to graduate. That's understandable. But you should know what's happening around you. You should invest in that. And that's why I like the astrobiology program at 
UW, University of Washington, because they provide their graduates with that vision. Another problem, as you all know, is the language. And in most of the uh, astrobiology meetings, people are comfortable enough to ask if they don't know. But language is a huge problem. Someone from MIT, a postdoc, everyone's language is different. Like I said in some of those RNA talks, and I had no fucking idea what they were talking about, even though I know the basics of what they are doing. I think language is a huge barrier in just being able to communicate what you do to people who aren't specialists in your field, I think is really important. And again, in some graduate programs, students are asked to deliver speeches to a multidisciplinary audience without dumping it down the quality of the topic, but with explaining these uh, language differences. Another problem is different workflows. Different disciplines have different authorship practices. You know, in astronomy or in NASA missions, it's common to include everyone in the project, even if you just, you know, screw, you know, use the screwdriver on the rocket that went on to Mars, your name is on the paper, for instance. But in some cases, you need to be the sole author, or there shouldn't be more than three authors on a paper if you want to get tenure. And again, as I said earlier, there are different values of modeling versus observation versus experimental data. So that creates some problems, and it's all about the scientific culture. We have to change it. Content is another problem. There is too much to know. Again, it's all about intellectual control vision. The structure, because, you know, when you write an interdisciplinary paper, there isn't enough reviewers to understand it, or when you submit a grant proposal, you know, they receive so many good proposals, they need something to eliminate you, and if they don't get that different interdisciplinary component of that proposal, that's the place they cut you. They <laughs> eliminate you for funding. Uh, another problem is uh, clashing goals. For instance, this was told me by a geoscientist. He, he had this idea. A friend of a geologist sent him the rocks and he went to a lab technician who uses a very complicated equipment, SIMS equipment, to analyze the sample. So they all need a paper. They all need to be the first author on that part. The lab technician is looking for a tenure track job. This guy is a postdoc. He's looking for a tenure track job. And the lab technician wants to publish this in a different journal. This geoscientist wants to publish it in a different journal. And that geologist who collected the sample thinks that it's my sample. You know, I should be the first author. So this clashing goes as a problem in uh, interdisciplinary team research. And there are many other problems. Before I move forward, let me stop here because I can talk on this topic forever. Now let's hear if you have any questions. Well, thanks a lot, Arsa. That was excellent. I think we all learned a lot from that. It's just kind of, I think for me, it's nice to be able to think about what I do kind of from a meta sort of like analyzing what I do from the outside like you do. And it maybe gives me some uh, ideas for the next time I go to a conference or interact with people. So I had one question actually, which is um, astrobiology is a young field, as you said, and you said that you know, three fourths of the community could be counted as younger versus senior. Now we also know that it takes time for publications to have an impact. You publish a paper, you're lucky to have a few citations within two to three years. Sometimes it takes more than that even. 
Is there any sort of a time lag bias in your research when you're analyzing these sort of, you know, who's citing who and what journals are they citing? Because astrobiology is young, do you think there's a bias toward the one-fourth that's senior? And can you maybe speculate on what you might see 10 years from now, given all these young people that are just starting to publish? I agree. There is a, there is the lag also is another shortcoming of bibliometric research because, uh, for instance, I analyzed the current themes, which you know, they publish now, and they will be cited in the next five to ten years. So, who cites them? Who knows? Who's going to cite them? Who knows? I can only look for them, which papers uh, they are citing. But for older years, I have already tried to build up the data set for since the inception of NAI from 98. Uh, and we're still working on that. We will have a better idea on what's happening in that area. For, your, for the question about what will happen in 10 years, the thing is the publishing world is changing currently. And we are not, I don't know if you're aware of that, nature had a special issue last month or the month before on the nature of publishing. Now we have these open access journals and the number of journals have increased enormously and also the number of co-authored papers increased enormously and research suggests that uh, co-authored papers, collaborated papers are cited much more. I guess this trend will continue and it will benefit astrobiology even though it is hard to publish uh, for early career scholars in astrobiology because they are young and not senior enough. But you know, if they collaborate with the right people to leverage their quality of their paper, I guess with the opportunities around, with the journals available, and with the interest into the topic because of, the, for instance, curiosity, I guess uh, they can benefit from it despite the shortcomings. I have one question. I can understand why interdisciplinary science is a scary thing because of all the reasons you said. I mean, communicating science even with the people in your field is a challenge. So, let alone trying to translate it to you know other people and, and many other things that you outlined. But I was wondering, have you um, studied or what you think about the students who are drawn into interdisciplinary fields? Like what? What motivates a young scientist to be a part of it? Because you did mention briefly that NAI has the efforts and we are all very grateful. And I know why I am interested in astrobiology. I know that we are a bunch of, you know, kids who grew, grew up reading like Ender's Game and ended up, you know, here because we want to understand the big picture. But are there any other mechanisms that motivates young scientists, young kids to study astrobiology or interdisciplinary science in general? That is a very good question, which I have, surprisingly, I have an answer for that. But I cannot speak the whole interdisciplinary fields that are around. I can, you know, my data set is for astrobiology mostly, so I can't talk about astrobiology, why people are drawn to astrobiology. Uh, that is, I believe, the topic. Astrobiology dares to ask big questions, I mean, really important big questions. And that's the basics of science. Why we are, and that's the base of curiosity. I mean, my definition of astrobiology, and there's an official definition on this website, you know, 
life uh, origin, distribution, evolution of life in the world and in the universe, blah, blah, blah. But my definition of astrobiology is, you know, you take everything minus Big Bang, you have astrobiology. But it's so broad and it's so important. And that's the real question, why people do science. You know, we want to learn where we come from and where we are going. That's, that's the very basics of human cognition, that curiosity. And that's the reason why people are drawn to astrobiology, is my uh, understanding. And among these young people, you see that passion. When they talk, even though they don't have any religious background, or even if they do, they talk like they are following a cult or a prophet that we don't know, we don't know, we figure like maybe Carl Sagan. And they use that rhetoric. For instance, you know, I will read three or four people and you can see that rhetoric, that religious rhetoric, you know, that, the, how they buy into it. That people feel to me, it feels like being part of a group of people who have a sort of sense of mission. That is certainly scientific, but it is deeper than that. It is philosophical. I would call it spiritual, but I'm a scientist, I cannot say spiritual. The other one says, it is not just a business, right? It's a calling, right? See, the, you know, sense of mission, calling, two different, another one. It's interesting because there is a sense of reverence, but also a sense of irreverence. So, you see this passion, people are, you know, it's, it's, you know, it is not like looking for, I don't know, it's hard to define, it's not... Yes, it's protein, protein binding, I won't, I won't be offended. <laughs> yeah, 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 I agree. And we have the, thanks to NAI, they realize that, they realize the importance of early career folks and provide the incentives as much as they can for these people so that they can utilize and uh, work more in this field. That's why people are trying to astrobiology. For interdisciplinary research, again, I can speculate the same thing. It answers the real questions. You know, when you work on a narrow field, you get an answer for a very narrow field. But if you are working on, let's say, sustainability, you have to be multidisciplinary or cross-disciplinary to answer that question. And it works, to be honest. My process of new research helps us with the problems we have in the world today. You know, energy problem, climate change, cancer research. These are all process of new problems. And you cannot answer climate change by only studying atmospheric science. Or you cannot answer that by only studying uh, forestry or oceanography. So in order, and if you don't get the answers, what's the worth of doing science? Even in basic research, you know, the origins of life, you need to go really deep and it's a multifaceted problem. You need to approach the topic from different angles to have a better understanding. Otherwise, it will be like defining that elephant, a blind man defining the elephant. You will only get one part. I like that interdisciplinary way of doing science is replacing the conventional way of just focusing on something. Because it, I think it forces scientists to open up and communicate. And I really like that, and I want actually communication and communication skills to be a mandatory property of a scientist. You know, I, I, it bugs me that 
the, the scientist image, even if you ask a kid to draw a picture of a scientist, it's always this isolated picture, yeah, glasses, and by, you know, by yourself, you're supposed to just be best friends with the microscopy, you know? So I, I like that this interdisciplinary way of thinking is also forcing scientists and kind of creating this elimination, in a way, or selection of scientists who are better at describing what they do to public, to other scientists, to succeed. So I'm very happy for that, in general. Just to make clear, I'm not saying that, you know, university research is going to die or useless. But no, that's I what I heard. I'm just yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, they I are complementary. There is value in both. Yeah, I, I, mean, I just, I only wish that these university scientists are not that narrow-minded. Yeah. You know? They no, can work. Yeah. They you can go back to the paper from the 70s when you need a detailed information. You know, you need that detailed study, you know, that is like the foundation or the reference for what we're doing. I'm just against their arrogance or their, you know, attitude. <laughs> Many old scientists think that having variety of interests in variety of topics is a disadvantage. If you're going to be focused, you have not even just scientists, academics. Um, I have a friend who's in, in English. He says they're discouraged from collaborating because if he and he's English studies rhetoric, it's almost history. But if he if he collaborates with a historian, the department wonders why there's two separate departments, and they or the, the college does, and they say we should make a department of cultural studies. And now the English faculty have lost some power to them. To me, department of cultural studies has a lot of value too. <laughs> Especially in humanities and social sciences, you need to be sole author. If, even if you collaborate with one person, that paper is useless. Has that to be is... one author alone. Yeah. Wow. So Grasshopper uh, typed in a question here. Yeah, and I'm reading the question for the. Okay, edit. so I'll just read it for the uh, podcast. Uh, you mentioned towards the end of your talk about claiming first authorship on papers. Perhaps it is time to revamp the first author system to improve collaboration. Perhaps, say, through a color scheme, green, yellow, red, or something like that for most contributions. Um, I'll add to that just a little bit of knowledge I have. I think science or nature, maybe both, they allow uh, dual co-authorship. So you can have two lead authors, I think, which is still a little clunky. But um, yes, yeah, so set. maybe your thoughts on, on that sort of approach, moving Actually, past first authorship. Two weeks ago, I was at a conference, uh, Science of Team Science conference in Evanston, uh, Illinois, and they had a paper about the, there was a presentation on this issue. Uh, in some journals uh, today, you can't type the contribution of every co-author on a paper. So you can say that, you know, they just provided the sample or did the analysis, or did the synthesis, the brain work that requires that multiplicity. So you can differentiate their roles. But of course, it is not consistent. You know, each journal has different approaches to that, and most of the journals don't have that. You just still old school type the names. So actually, a color code uh, might be useful in terms of differentiating. You know, you can't come up with a three or four categories and then tell you know, these are the main authors, these are in the supportive roles, and these are, well, we have to include that because he had the lab or something. <laughs> but I, I agree, the authorship system 
works against uh, collaboration. And it's, it's especially hard to differentiate in uh, cross-disciplinary research because if two people or you know, five people contributed equally, you cannot capture that. And if your analysis is based on that co-authorship names only, then you then it's wrong. And uh, I, I agree with Grasshopper, that's a very good idea. All right, well, thanks so much again, Arsev. Uh, we're about at time, so um, we'll leave it at that. I think you've given us a lot of things to think about. I think as the rest of us uh, go do our science, I think we'll be thinking a little bit of meta-science behind that, on you know, what's going on behind what we're doing and how can we make our uh, collaborations more effective. Uh, so thanks again. And listeners, uh, remember you can listen to past podcasts at bmsis.org slash podcast. And uh, we'll hear, uh, see you again next month. Thanks. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.